Well, we have the joy of returning to the book of Jonah and finishing it out this morning as we'll look at the last chapter in the book and consider what God is saying to us today through the prophet many, many years ago, through the testimony of his life and through his ministry, the little that we know about Jonah. Despite him having a long-standing ministry and ministering to the nation of Israel for many years, he's made reference in 1 Kings and 1 Samuel. We know that he had a role to play But in terms of what we know about his ministry, all that we have is in this book. One particular aspect is he was called to the Ninevites to preach God's message to them. Before we jump into that this morning, one thing that that just puzzles me that I wanted to stop to consider was the tendency that we have today whenever we look at history in any regard to consider our, ans- our historical ancestors as very silly and perhaps even stupid in some cases. Here's what I mean by that. I want you to imagine for just a moment an idea or a concept of the entire world that is driven and motivated by the earth being the center of the cosmos, everything revolving around the earth. Oh, I saw it. Joshua just cringed at the thought that this could even be something that we could come to grasp with. Do we think that Aristotle was silly? Do we think that he was unfounded or lacking in logic or reason or even that he wasn't a very smart person because his concept of our world was that the earth was in the center of it? I mean, just passing by this historical fact when I think about Aristotle and I realize that as a leader of the time that he was teaching that the earth was in fact the center of the universe, that the sun was making its way around the earth along with everything else that we see passing through our sky. I'm tempted just in brushing by this to say that his geocentric view of the world perhaps needs the first two letters switched around to reveal that it was in fact egocentric, that he thought that he was in the center of the world. But I think I would be the one who is silly to make such an assertion. I don't think Aristotle was stupid. I don't think that he was lacking logic or reason when he made this assertion. I don't think that he was even making a mistake. From his perspective, with all of the evidence that he had at hand, what he made was astonishingly rational. And I bring this up just to point out our perspective from where we sit, from where we stand, from what we're looking at, our preferences, everything that goes into making us who we are, all the knowledge that we have to refer to, the accessibility of information that we have with search engines and everything else, gives us a perspective that allows us to look at Aristotle and say, well, he was lacking reason. I wonder... Could the same be applied to our perspective of missions, our perspective of what the church is, our perspective of the way that God uses his prophet? In fact, could we say that even in some allegorical sense, the narrative of Jonah is being applied to the nation of Israel whose perspective has warped them in such a way that they do not see what God is doing for all the nations. 
We've so far made our way through the book of Jonah, looking at it through the lens of what does it mean to walk with God. Oftentimes, our Christian faith and our spiritual journey is compared to that of a walk or a progression. And we start in chapter one and we see Jonah running away and we find a man running away from God, which is all of it, which is all of ours beginning point. That's where we begin in our relationships with God. From the moment of birth, we are running away from him. We are living in rebellion against him. In chapter two, we find Jonah breaking and we see the act in the hands of God as he moves in the circumstances of his life to break him and humble him to cause him not to run away from God, but to run to God. In chapter 3, we find Jonah finally being faithful to do what God had called him to do. And we find a man not running away, not running to, but running with God. What then do we find in chapter 4? As we read it, I'd ask you to consider that we find a man running ahead of God. Pray with me as we prepare to read God's holy word. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning, for the privilege that we have to study your word. Lord, we pray simply, open the eyes of our heart that we might be able to behold the amazing truths found in your law. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and a merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out to the city and sat in the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered when the sun rose. God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor. Nor did you make it grow, which came, it, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Let's begin then looking at what's happening in the narrative so far. If you haven't been with us over the past weeks, what we found is Jonah has been called to preach to the people of Nineveh, reporting to them that because of their evil ways, God's will is that the city would be overturned, specifically that it would be overthrown. And in it being overthrown, Jonah is finally faithful, makes his way into this great city, which takes a day to get to the center. He gets there and he says, the word of God says, in 40 days, you will be overthrown. 
But the Ninevites, their response to this is amazing. Not, normally, when we hear God's word, even the people of Israel up to this point, we, we look and we read through the prophets and Jonah's contemporaries. Amos is preaching. Nahum is preaching in a few years. Jonah's a minister of the time. And Israel is not repenting. Here are this evil and wicked people in Nineveh who, upon hearing the word of the God, simple, simple, the simple word, 40 days and God will overthrow you. They mourn. Everyone from the king to the lowest of the people in the city puts on sackcloth, sits in ashes and mourn, crying out to God, repenting of their evil ways, fasting that they might constantly be reminded of their need to pray and their need for God to be the one who provides for them. The Bible says clearly that they believed when they heard this word, and we talked about this in, I think, greater length last week. Even Jesus makes reference to the men of Nineveh standing in condemnation of those who would fail to believe in God because from a simple word, they were faithful to believe. That biblical evidence gives me confidence to say that their belief was genuine, that their repentance was genuine. And here, God and Jonah apparently is brought to the understanding that because they have responded in such a way, God is going to relent. He's going to turn away from his judgment. Rather than overthrowing them, they are going to continue on. And here is Jonah. He's walked away from God. He's ran to God. He's ran with God, and now he's walking ahead of God. With all of his understanding of the wickedness of the people of Nineveh, he is not satisfied with God's will to relent. Instead of this, the Bible begins in chapter 4 that as God turns away to it, or if we looked in chapter 3, verse 10, God saw that the Ninevites had repented, how they had turned from their evil ways. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Chapter 4, verse 1, and this displeased Jonah. He was angry. You're missing this because it doesn't, it's not, we're just not able to translate this the way that it is written in Hebrew. But there's a, a play on words here that I think is very significant to point out. The ESV reads that it, referring to Nineveh report, re- repenting, possibly God's decision to relent, exacting his punishment, displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. The King James Version tries to point out the same idea with emphasis to the original language by simply adding one word. The only difference between a King James translation and ESV translation is the word very. But it doesn't really add anything to our understanding. What we look at, the translators are trying to draw out or try to emphasize, is that the word angry that Jonah is seeing is related to the Hebrew word for evil or disparaging, that it displeased him is the word ra'ah, and it carries this broader meaning of anger or displeasure or even injustice. And at the end of the phrase, we find Jonah is angry. Well, it's the same word, ra'ah. And what does all this mean? Well, another way to translate verse one would be it angered, or Jonah, it was, Jonah saw the anger and Jonah was angry, or Jonah saw the evil, and Jonah was evil. 
See, I can see the problem the translators had because putting it in that literal translation or that word-for-word thought loses the meaning of the original sentence. But this is what, in the creative way that language allows us to do sometimes, what God's sovereignty is actually writing and attributing is that the evil that Jonah saw in Nineveh being spared is actually attributed to him. It angered Jonah. Jonah was evil. He saw that the Ninevites not being condemned by God was evil. But in fact, his rebellion against God's will is evil attributed to him. No longer is he walking with God, but we see he's walking ahead of him. How often does our righteous understanding of what God should be doing in the world get in the way of us submitting to what God is actually doing in the world? How often do we get in front of God through some sort of what we think is a righteous indignation when really we are so far ahead of God's will that we are not able to worship Him genuinely? I think this helps us to understand the shift that has happened in chapter 4. As Jonah relents and he promises in chapter 2 that he will pay he will, that that he will uh, make this prom- this promise that he has made to God with a vow that he has made he will keep it salvation belongs to the Lord he surrenders himself back to God almost through a reaffirmation or a, a resurrender of being a prophet for God or a reacceptance of what God has called him to do and in all of this vigor he goes to Nineveh he says I'll tell the people that you're going to overthrow them I don't want to and he tells tells us why he doesn't want to. Because he knows God. He knows his nature and his characteristics. He knows that he's a loving God, that he's steadfast in love, that he's merciful, that he responds to those who repent, and that he will be able to relent from disaster. But in getting ahead of God, the evil that he sees is attributed to him. Ultimately, a look at the language makes it clear that the evil Jonah saw ultimately is attributed to his own person. It's disobedience that a finite man could object to the infinite God's perfect will. It is sin in Jonah's life. This wordplay that we're looking at, again, makes its way into verse 4 where we see God's description. Now, the word that When God asks Jonah, do you do well to be angry? The word is hara. Again, ra, the word for anger, evil, injustice. Do you do well to be angry? It carries this condemnation of Jonah's anger within the question. And that brings me to this question. Have you ever wondered what made the Jewish people, or Jonah in this case, so settled on their righteousness, so settled on their indignation towards the Assyrians or the Ninevites in this case, that Jonah, a prophet, would run away from God? What would cause even the most steadfast Christian to stand up to know God's will and to see circumstances in their life and to run away Do you think Jonah was simply just living in disobedience and he had accepted the fact, well, I don't want to do this and I can control my circumstances and so here I go? The way that we think about this matters. 
Ultimately, regardless of what we think, we find in God's sovereignty appointing this great fish to swallow. And we, everyone, I mean, there's no one that could not admit this is a magnificent tale. A great fish swallows a man, drives him to dry land, vomits him up. This is fantastical. And here Jonah is on dry land. Whatever's happened, the word's gone ahead of him. Something significant has happened. And he finally gets to the Ninevites. He's able to present God's word. And I feel bad. This short little book, four chapters, compared to Jeremiah's long recorded ministry. How many people in this great city repent? They believe God. Jesus himself says, the men of Nineveh will stand to condemn you who have not believed. But I see the same attitude that causes a man to run away as I do in chapter 4. God, don't you know that this is evil, what is happening in the world? God, don't you know that these people who do not worship you deserve calamity in their life? God, where is your judgment? I read in the Old Testament these amazing stories, not just of your sovereignty and appointing a great fish, but of your judgment raining down fire. I see your judgment destroying entire cities that you would purify the land around us. God, I see people being called to you as a result of seeing your magnificent power and judgment. And I look at the world and I think we are far worse than any of these other places. Where is the hand of the Lord against these who are evil and wicked, against those who would seek to destroy you? God, why don't you judge these people? And as a matter of fact, I think many Christians would even stand up and say, why don't you use me to condemn them? We see this anger and we respond to it. And so often, just like in verse 1, Our anger towards the evil of this world reveals not the anger that is inside the world, but the evil that is inside us. What do you think made Israel willing to to be an unrepentant state, blessed by God and everything else? What made Jonah, as a representative of this in this narrative, unwilling to go to the Ninevites? Doesn't it make us feel better to focus on the righteousness of Christ's church? Isn't it easier as a Christian to sit and to talk about the glories of being a righteous people pursued by God? How the world has totally led astray, that if we focus on the depravity of this world, it doesn't matter because all of a sudden any trivial matter of sin in our lives we're still doing much better than them. This is human nature to be comparative, to make comparisons to those around us. And as a result, and by the way, this is something that middle schoolers learn. It's when, it's when bullying starts to enter in our social lives, right? If I can put somebody down far enough, Well, in some convoluted way, that elevates me. And all the adults this morning are sitting back and saying, yeah, that's wrong. I'm glad children don't bully like that, that I haven't taught my children to do that. But it's what we do. 
Did you see that so-and-so dyed their hair? Did you see this? How many passing comments do we make of comparison? Do we measure ourselves by those around us? Instead of measuring ourselves by what God has said in His Word. I said whenever we looked at how, God, how Jonah ran back to God, that his method was refocusing his life on God and godly things. We do that through reading what God has said. Our only measurement and standard for ourselves should become ourselves. Because if we are not careful like Jonah, our measurement of success and holiness will be everyone around us. And the Bible is very clear about the state of everyone around us. The measurement of holiness is perfection. Jonah was not without sin. We see that in a simple reading of this testimony of his life. But still, the sin of the Ninevites demanded God's condemnation. Let's be real for just a moment when we look at the nature of sin, Christians. Even the trivial, tiny, minuscule sin that is in your life and in my life today, when we understand it clearly and we allow the Bible to describe it to us in the way that we should understand it, we should all be moved to mourn the way that the Ninevites did. I'm not saying that we should be without joy, without peace. I mean, all of these things come about through the Holy Spirit in our life, giving us confidence to know that our sins have been covered. But we shouldn't neglect the fact that for those sins to be covered, it cost our Savior his life. Death on a cross, a criminal's death. God's expectation is perfection. If you were enjoying God's covenant with Israel and you had to constantly remind it of this depravity. I think about about this when we look at from Jonah's perspective or the nation of Israel's perspective. And they're holding on to the Pentateuch. God's law revealed to them. Numbers, Deuteronomy, all these explanations of the different ways that they should be living a holy life. When you read these things, it is not uplifting in nature. In fact, it expounds and pulls the veil back so that we might be able to see just how awful sin is. Uh, This is the issue that I think Jonah would have been facing. He saw how awful sin was in the Israel. Well, they were the ones under God's sovereignty. They were the one, the chosen people by God. God had given them all of these explanations. And so they were doing their best to be evil. And if instead of applying it to their own lives, if they would just look across their borders, they would see how awful the Assyrians are. Well, that would in some way assuage them. Here's really what I'm driving towards. Just so we're clear, our disgruntled attitude in many cases, can be a projection of our own wickedness or our own folly. In other words, rather than reading the Bible that it might speak to our lives, we project our own feeling of guilt onto those around us. Do not let it leave your mind that God is answering the prayer of Jonah within the great fish. When Jonah prayed, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you. 
Into your holy temple, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. John Newton's hymn, I think, captures the attitude in which God responds to this. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, he answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith, these inward trials I employ. From self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy, that thou mayst find thine all in me. There is an earnest purpose in God's will, especially in the story of Jonah, to show us how we have projected our righteous indignation towards ourselves onto others. Respond to this by humbly turning your focus inward. Respond to this by relenting to God and allowing Him to have ultimate sovereignty in your life, surrendering your own will, your own volition. Rest in this truth assured that the same comparison shown to the Ninevites is turned also toward Jonah as he breaks fellowship through sin. And the same compassion that God shows to the Ninevites is shown to Jonah in his weary faithfulness. When we look Moving on through chapter 4, it's very evident that Jonah knows much about who God is. He says the Lord uh, of his country, this is why he's fleed from Tarshish, and I'm in verse 2, he knew that God is gracious, that he is merciful, that he is slow to anger, that he is abounding in steadfast love. We should make no mistake then that while we are sitting uneasy to acknowledge the fact that our righteous indignation should most likely be pointed towards ourselves, as we squirm, avoiding the reality that we desperately want to point our finger at the evil of this world, that all the knowledge that we have of God, the chiasmic gap between what we know of God and what the reality of God is, even the knowledge of the heathen and unrighteous, even the unrepentant, the reprobate of our community, to know God is very much different than to know much about Him. Jonah knew much about God. And despite that, despite surrendering himself to God, he asks him to take his life from me. I love this cry. I love it when the prophet says, it it seems like Jonah's a, a rather weak kind of, we might even call him a snowflake in today's language. God, you won't do what I want. Take my life from me. But I don't think that's really the case. This cry doesn't seem to me to be the cry of a depressed or a discouraged prophet, not at all. Instead, I think this mirrors in my mind the cry of the prophet Elijah. 
I have devoted my life to your ministry, God. I look around me and I see everything taking place in the world and it doesn't line up with what I know. I am nothing without you. And so if you won't fix this, take me out of this nonsense. I don't see a depressed prophet. I don't see him uh, fainting away under the pressures of ministry. I don't even see him upset um, that he's been called to the Ninevites. What I see is that he sees what would be the right thing is that these people would be condemned and judged. And instead of God doing that, he says, God, it just doesn't make sense to me. I'm nothing without you. And so if you won't put things in track with what I, the way that I think they should go, take me out of this nonsense. Elijah said the same thing, and when Elijah did it, God was faithful not only to direct him in the path that he should go, but eventually even taking him out of the nonsense. I think Jonah's making some sort of reference to this, God, just take me to be with you. I've been faithful. I don't know what your plan is. Take me to be with you. Even though you're sovereign, it seems to me that in this world your power has been usurped. Therefore, my life is meaningless. If your destruction isn't coming against those who deserve your judgment, take my life. And crying out this way, the prophet is really asking to be shown a greater meaning in the injustice that he perceives. Oftentimes, whenever we face the uh, calamities of this world or uh, when we see hardship come against people who we don't think deserve hardship, our natural response, especially if we're distanced from the suffering, is to say, well, God must have a greater meaning in all of this that we cannot perceive. And while that's true, uh, sometimes it doesn't help us to understand what we're seeing. Jonah is crying out in this moment, saying, God, you must have a greater meaning. What is it? This explains why Jonah would, instead of just leaving Nineveh and making his way back to Israel, would sit outside at the east of the city to wait with this understanding, seeking that God would show him something. And in this quiet hour, when our heart learns or we begin to learn to know God and simply, instead of simply knowing much about Him, this is the purpose of the final discourse that we find in Jonah's narrative. Right? So follow along. Jonah has ran away from God. He's ran to God. He's ran with God. Now he's running ahead of God. The evil that he perceives is actually attributed to him. He's crying out to God, asking for the greater meaning in all of this, continuing to rely on him. And Christian, this is something to hold on to. Because if you are not there or you haven't experienced it already, the reality is that in your life you will come to a place in your pursuit with God, in your walk with God, when you will cry out to God to reveal to you the greater meaning in everything. When the injustices that you perceive do not seem fair. When it doesn't make sense that a perfectly holy God could be in control when the things that are happening in our world stand in stark contrast against what we know of his righteous judgment. And it's in this moment that we cry out. 
acknowledging that God is in control. It's in this moment when God's response does not come to us like a voice in the wind. It's in this moment that the Christian hears silence. We make the mistake. Oftentimes when we think about this hour of silence in our Christian walk. And we say, perhaps only if you would focus on your need to repent. Perhaps you have fallen out of fellowship with God, and if you focused on your need to repent, you would be restored to a state of joy with God, the kind of joy and, and hope that you experienced and peace that you experienced the moment and the hour that you were first saved. You would feel a lightness in your heart, an unburdened and uncumbersome way of walking in life because you know that God is with you. But I tell you this morning, I think we have made a great mistake in the church when we continually point people towards repentance when there is no evidence of something that needs to be repented of. God uses His silent response to grow us and to make us mature. It is in the moment of silence that our faithfulness is tested and refined and made pure like gold. It is in the moment of crying out when we rely in the fact that God has promised us that He is faithful, that we do not need constant affirmation of His faithful love towards us, that we learn to be steadfast in our love for Him. The mistake we make when we point people back towards repentance is we say, I see that God has raised you and you're growing in your spiritual maturity. Get back to being a baby. Rather than saying, trust that God is in this. Trust that in the storms, in the tumult, in the the waves crashing over you and everything that is pursuing you in life, not being able to get your head up for breath, trust that God is in it. Because he's promised not to abandon you. It's in this that we find the final discourse of chapter 4. The quiet hour when the heart learns to know God instead of simply knowing much about him. Jonah finds pleasure in a plant that rises up out of the ground. And all of this is because God is teaching us of His concern, God explaining His uh, steadfast love. Notice again, if you turn really quick to, to the phrase in verse 10 and 11, Jonah pities the plant and God pities the Ninevites. This is a parallel picture explaining to us the way that God feels about even the people outside of His covenant relationship with Israel, about His creation about those that he has created and labored over. He says, I pity them. Because without the law, they don't know the left hand from the right hand. They don't know what's right and what's wrong, except for the moral moral knowledge that I've born inside of them through my natural revelation. This plant comes up. And it pleases Jonah. And I think this is so interesting. Commentators have said that the plant um, is kind of just a shelter for Jonah and it keeps him from the sun. 
But I want to point out that if you've read chapter 4, and we've already read it, Jonah built a booth to keep his head out of the, the sun's direct rays. Now, the plant probably helped in some way, and we just hear this east wind, which is described in the Middle East. We have to understand it's not just a hot wind. It's a scorching wind, and, and it would last for hours. But I don't think the plant played much role in it other than the fact that when it raised up, I think it made Jonah happy to see it. I mean, I, I really am trying not to stretch the text too far here, but I think the, the traditional interpretation of this, Jonah has this, uh, he has the shelter, the booth that he has built for himself. He sat under the shade in verse 5, and then God appoints a plant. The plant comes up over Jonah, and I think it just pleases him. I mean, I really think this is truly, in despite of all this wickedness, Jonah sees life. A little green plant. He sees, despite all of the discourse in the world, he sees an innocent plant. And I think it brings him joy. In the same way, and I love this, in the same way that God appointed a great fish, he appoints a tiny worm to crawl up and destroy the plant. And we see Jonah's attitude again. God, I don't understand this. Here's this wicked city that you have sent me to. The Assyrians who are, and, and we talked about this, all of the wickedness that is taking place in their life. And you have despite it, decided to relent of your anger towards them. And here's this innocent little plant that was bringing me joy. This little green plant. And you've killed it. God, I don't understand your ways. Get me out of here. I mean, isn't this what we say when our lives are in the middle of a storm? God, I don't understand why you wouldn't relent your anger against me. Get me out of this. God, I don't understand why you would let me go through this. Get me out of this. Instead of saying, God, whatever you are teaching me through this, well, give me the grace to understand it so that I don't have to learn this lesson again. Jonah's perspective that he's ready just to escape everything that is around him so that he can ascend up to heaven to be with God, to worship him purely, I would compare it to what I would call escapist theology where his delight and his hope in looking forward to the glory of heaven has given him justification to escape the realities of the world around him. The Bible does not give us an escapist theology. It calls us to look at the world around us, to look at the injustice, to look at the physical needs, to care for the needs of widows and um, orphans, and to care for them. It doesn't give us justification to escape the wickedness of our world. It calls us to address it and to minister to the things going on. 
Our delight in the glories of heaven should never relieve us of our burden for the present world. I think this is the risk that we often we face and that is up against us as well as what Jonah demonstrates here. Frank Gabling says, one of the greatest cha- challenges besetting man is that they should become such a part of the environment that they miss the pathos that pervades the universe. What does that mean, Gabling? The pathos or the passion or the energy that drives the environment that we are a part of. Here's what he's saying. As we sit on our front porch or along the bank fishing, it is so easy to check our minds out of the reality that we exist in a place that has a constant passion driving through it. The gospel story is revealed in nature as much as it is revealed in the Bible. That's not to say that special revelation isn't necessary for understanding what God said. Absolutely. If you want to hear from God, this is where you hear it. But if you need to be pointed to God, it is all around you. Romans chapter 8 verse 22 says that we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Many have called Romans chapter 8 the climax of the entire Bible, and especially of, of the book of Romans. As we look at what Paul develops to our need for a Savior, as we surrender to him, what adoption looks like, and then this description of the world that we live in. And this is the same picture that we have for Jonah. The nation of Israel has been given tremendous blessings, covenants with God, a disclosure or a revelation of His law. They've been given instructions for how to worship Him, and they've been doing all of these different things, and they neglect the fact that the burden of sin is death. Romans 8 says, We know. That since the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, all of creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth, the, the, the curse given to Eve. Now, not just given to humankind, but when we see a plant wither, when we see a worm crawl up a tree and surround it in that cotton candy looking stuff, and all of a sudden the next season that tree comes back and there's no leaves on it and it's dead. I've seen it take over whole neighborhoods, right? When we see things start to decay, or we walk through a field and we look down at our pants and they've been covered in briars, and we hear stories uh, uh, from our missionary in Africa telling us about a, a thorn bush that carries with it a sort of poison that causes infection, and kills children. All of creation has been affected by the consequences of sin, groaning in the pains of childbirth. And not only creation, but we ourselves, Paul says, speaking to the regenerate members of this church, those that know adoption, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, those who have been saved. In Jonah's case, even those who were under the covenant of Israel. We know the suffering that the world is going through and we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. 
Oh, I know suffering. And I know God. How much more is the world suffering around us that they don't know the glories of heaven, that they don't have any hope? What are the consequences of having an escapist theology that I think I can neglect the burdens of this world and pay no attention to the widows and the orphans? What are the consequences that I could go in life and not care for my neighbor? And not just in a physical way, but this is spiritual. How could I, who know the deposit of the Holy Spirit, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, not see the burden for those who do not? We ourselves, Paul says, groan inwardly. The word groan in Romans is marvelous. Because the depiction is the sound that somebody would make when they get punched in the side. It's not a sound you can really make voluntarily. It's the sound that a corpse would make as the air is relieved from their lungs. We groan. Waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. For the redemption of our bodies. Why would God leave me in a place where I could experience all of the consequences of sin? He's left you here for a reason. There is a purpose and a design in God's will. And that greater purpose, I can say it with confidence because it's in our text, should not lead you to say, God, I want to check out. I'd rather be with you. Let's go home. And then you can keep doing. You're sovereign. You don't need me, God. Instead of saying, God, your perfect will has ordained that I would be here and be used by you. And I'm willing to suffer for you. And all of these groanings that I will go through as I long for the redemption of my body, as I experience pain, arthritis, and everything that comes even just with being old. God, I with fervor am eager to serve you. As I experience hardship in my relationships, as I battle against wickedness in this world, as I deal with the insanity that seems to pervade, I am yours. Rather than running ahead of you, God, I want to run with you. Which means I have to give up the fact that I think I know what is best for God to do. Rather than asking God to simply judge those around me, God, use me in your merciful grace because I do know you as a God who is abounding in grace and mercy, who is slow to anger, who is abounding in steadfast love, who relents from disaster. Use me in this. Because God's forbearance to put off judgment does not last forever. Hear me with the last little bit of time that we have left this morning. Historically, the Assyrian Empire has about 60 years left from the time of Jonah's ministry. The Assyrian Empire will be overthrown. They will be condemned. God's judgment against the wicked in this world is as sure as the historical fact that the Assyrian Empire was conquered by Babylon. The historical fact that 
Israel would be conquered by Assyria, that Judah would be conquered by Babylon, that the Israelites would be put in this uh, Babylonian captivity for many years before they're able to return and rebuild the temple. Everything that is history that has culminated up to the point of the rebuilding of the temple. And then the Roman captivity, uh, we would even say, in Israel. The birth of the Messiah. The day that the cross would be formed. And make no mistake, the progression of establishing the cross began in these people that Jonah is condemning in the Assyrian Empire, perfected by the Romans so that Jesus might suffer the sin that God decided was necessary, that he would pay the price of sin on the cross, that dying the perfect man, that he would come to save all of those who puts their faith in him, that he would become the fulfillment of all of the law, that Jonah's righteous indignation would point towards the Ninevites, causing him to not want to go to pursue them. And here we stand today, many years later, left in the same turmoil, in the same world, in the same world that has depravity with those that would do wicked things. And our call has not changed. Because we know that the peace that we have comes from the Holy Spirit within us, and if we don't have the Holy Spirit within us, we have no idea what we're talking about. But that that same privilege is afforded to every generation from every nation because God says that that is His plan, and He's calling you to be a part of it. Because His mercy will not last forever. The day will come when His justful and holy attributes will require him to judge all wickedness in this earth. And when we see depictions of hell and we look at the illustrations of what hell might look like, it is not to scare us, but it is to help us to realize the wickedness of our own sin. Because the only way that we will ever have a pure testimony before the wicked in this world is if we are cleansed, if we are purified with hyssop as the, the, the psalmist writes. And so we pray this dangerous prayer. God, search me. Help me to know myself. And I say it's a dangerous prayer because God very much might, like he did to Jonah, answer the prayer the way that he has. He might bring about brokenness. He might bring us to a place of humility. He might bring us to a place of uncertainty. He might bring us to a place of doubt. Because in His will, this might be the divine measure used to help us to grow. Are we going to run away from that? Well, I think for many of us, we have something to consider. God, am I willing to pursue Your will so much that even if You bring me to a place of emptiness, of lowliness, of humility, am I willing to grow in you, or am I okay being a baby Christian? God, if you need to grow me, grow me. And if you need to humble me to do that, I surrender to you. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning, for your word and the way that it instructs us to grow. God, I pray that through the wisdom that we have in reading the book of Jonah, that we would know how to apply it to our lives, that you would guide us to responding 
and you would guide us to knowing you. In Jesus' heavenly name we pray. Amen.